Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. November 9th, the city of Los Angeles decided that the magical powers of government to borrow and spend and regulate new housing units into existence was a sound solution to a problem created by the magical powers of government rules and regulations, the ones that this city suffered from for most of the past half century. Zoning and restrictions, crony incentives to build in certain places just to justify past boondoggles, and even outright rick controls have been tried before in this city. The effect? Devastating. Whole sections of the city were left abandoned. Long-term undersupply of housing was created, and it's part of the reason that still to this day, L.A. has a 10.5x ratio of median home price to median salary, while in Houston, the, city's fifth largest, the country's fifth largest city, it's only 3.1. But hey, maybe this time. What do individuals see? Why is it that they could continue to be conned into voting for this kind of outright cronyism? I think it's pretty simple. To paraphrase Henry Hazlitt, he had said something in uh, economics in one lesson. And what it amounted to was they see what government and media highlight. What politicians claim they will accomplish, and when right, they point to and glorify themselves on how, how wonderful a job government did. When wrong, there's always a capitalist strawman to blame. Or the public just kind of forgets about it shortly after. No politician walks around and points to fully occupied buildings saying, look what private entrepreneurs and their private crews did. Isn't that incredible? Likewise, no politician walks around the the abandoned parts of a city saying, look what government restrictions and regulations did to devastate this neighborhood. And the fact is, is that even if somebody did, government cannot operate like a private enterprise. They're not private enterprises. Just if government has a low approval and a perception of incompetence, it's not enough to oust an entire city council or entire state government or entire federal government and replace them with more competent actors. In government, you must wait. If government's allocation of resources, if their rules and regulations have adverse effects, you have to wait until the next election. If the rules put in place lead to an activity that wasn't intended and has a counter effect on the attempted goal that was to be accomplished, politicians blame greed and discrimination. Well, some people may say, well, hey, the majority spoke, live with the consequences or move. The fact is that a majority does not have any right to impose at gunpoint restrictions on other people's property. Ultimately, what it boils down to is an oxymoronic self-adopted dual mandate for housing that local, state, and federal politicians collude on to, in order to turn out votes. That the, double man, the dual mandate, the reason it's oxymoronic, is an attempt that to through laws to promote both an everlasting upward trend in real estate values and home ownership rates while simultaneously increasing quote unquote affordable housing. Of course, if housing is to be a valuable investment for homeowners, the supply need be constrained. 
If housing is to be affordable for low-income folks, supply needs to be unrestrained. Instead of understanding this, what people, the voters in the city of L.A. decided to do instead is give the city politicians the right to borrow $1.2 billion worth of claims over real resources, artificially increasing demand of real resources while taking real resources off the market, and in the case of the land that they're going to use, potentially permanently, while also giving the city politicians the right to block rezoning projects if they don't comply with a bunch of arbitrary price point and labor hiring practices. In the case of the new rules and regulations, it will absolutely increase costs, both time and money costs. Of the real estate entrepreneurs that are seeking to rezone a lot that could provide 100 new units from an unsaid real resource that's currently not being used and being converted to additional housing supply. Whether they're doing that for luxury or for low income or for middle income, what it does is it adds to the supply of housing units. And ultimately, it frees up vacancy rates, which will, if there's large vacancy rates, prices will start to come down as the real estate owners lower the price in order to get people to move out of where they're currently living and move into their building. And in the case of the new rules and regulations that the city passed, you know, the other result is going to, it's going to be longer and longer to bring new housing units that require rezoning. And a lot of the, the I mean, if it didn't require rezoning, we wouldn't have this shortage. So a lot of the, one of the problems is, is that a lot of the uh, land is zoned in a way to where there's not much real estate developers can do. And the land, the land that they can do anything on, is, it's already being done. Because the profit incentive is, is strong enough for people to go and take risk, private risk, to go and add additional housing units. But they're doing it where they're able to. They would do it other places as well if they were able to, and that would increase vacancy rates and bring down the price. And it's going to take a lot longer to do it now. The other result is that single-family residential units that are primarily built to service middle and upper middle and upper class income earners, they're going to get all the residential attention. So you're, you're not going to see, you know, supposedly these affordable housing, you're not going to see those come online. Well, you're, rather, what you're going to see is resources go towards fixing up older single family homes that aren't going to require any, any zoning. You're also going to see commercial real estate continue to be maintained and maybe over-maintained, on, uh, on, on land that's or, or being built on land that's already zoned for commercial. They're just going to build according to the zoning. They're not going to try to get rezoned. And both these measures will continue to restrict the supply of housing for the below average income earner and for the young, hardworking family or individual. And it'll necessitate a continuing increase in the cost of housing because housing is one of, you know, one of those goods that has essentially it's totally inelastic demand. The higher you need housing, at least temporarily, until you can decide to move to a place and, and get yourself set up in a place where the cost of housing is a little bit lower. I'm your host, Andrew Smith, and this is the Macro View. So I want to deep, dig a little bit deeper into both of these measures today. Let me just start with measure HHH, which is deemed the Homelessness Reduction Act or something along those lines. But ironically, I mean, just, just from the get-go, it directly calls for increasing housing prices by via increased property tax. So just increasing the property tax is going to directly increase housing prices. 
and it's going to directly increase the, the cost, you know, with quote unquote affordable living will be necessarily higher by the property tax that gets passed through to the consumer, to the renter or the buyer of, of the home or of the housing unit. And I want to read, uh, you know, what, what in this measure was titled the situation and then the proposal, and I'm going to get through them and then I'm going to kind of pick them apart. So the situation, the homeless, popula- the homeless population in Los Angeles is approximately 26,000, an 11% increase, 11% increase since 2015, partly due to an undersupply of affordable housing, overall low vacancy rates, and high rents. Homelessness affects all segments of society and is a public health and safety concern citywide. The city and county of Los Angeles, in partnership with key stakeholders, determined that approximately 13,000 housing units are needed. Revenue sources are required to finance this housing. The proposal. The city would issue up $1.2 billion in general obligation bonds to buy, build, or remodel facilities to provide supportive housing for homeless individuals and families where services such as health, such as healthcare, mental health, and substance abuse treatment, education, and job training may be provided. Bullet point two, temporary shelters and facilities such as storage and showers. Bullet point three, affordable housing up to 20% of bond funds, including veterans housing for individuals and families with low income. And bullet point number four, related infrastructure. Citizens oversight and administrative committees will monitor bond expenditures. A financial audit should be conducted annually. So that's the, the situation. There's 26,000 homeless people in Los Angeles. That's increased by about 11% just over the past year, about almost two years, I guess, depending on when they measured it from. And they want to issue $1.2 billion in bonds. And a, one last point is that the bonds will be paid by an increase in property taxes. And there's a detail, you know, detailed in the accompanying tax rate statement. So basically, property taxes will go up to pay for the bond. So what's really the problem here? I mean, about half of one month's rent per resident to provide 13,000 units. And that's probably based on an assumption of about 500 square feet per unit at about 150 to $170 per square foot. And now homeless homeless people will have a place to live all as well, right? Well, ultimately, the issue here is that real resources are finite. And the, the money that they're borrowing is a claim on real resources. So the government borrows this money and they use it to allocate to private capital equipment leases or to hire a contractor that th- then does that, th- to purchase resources, uh, to contract architects, it bids up the prices of all these real resources that are needed to build housing units. All the real resources needed to increase the supply, i.e. reduce the price of housing units. And all this is without mentioning the effect that it has on existing land. The existing land is is, going to become more scarce as government secures a big chunk of it for their boondoggle here. And this reduces the supply of land on which housing units could have been built, and it drives up the price of raw land further. This takes ho- units of housing that could otherwise be rented to rent-paying, responsible dwellers, effectively freeing up occupancy elsewhere and giving bidders for housing units a more competitive landscape, bidders being the people that are going to rent, that are going to buy, 
or they're going to buy to rent. And issuing government bonds also further increases competition with private capital raises. It drives up the cost of capital for a private enterprise, especially some of these municipal bonds. These bonds, the municipal bonds, they receive a tax incentive. Their income, the, the income they, they throw off is, is tax-free. So retirees that live off of investment income and typically through their investment funds and their retirement funds and whether it's through their pension or their 401k or just a private fund, they provide a lot of capital to private enterprises. And have more of an incentive. They now have more of an incentive, especially the wealthier they are, to purchase these municipal bonds so that the income that they receive doesn't come along with the tax consequences of corporate bonds or of equity dividend income. And this increases the cost of private capital for private private enterprises, which means that now it's going to cost more for them to acquire the capital. They've got to know that they're going to be able to make. X amount of a profit, which means they're going to have to charge Y price. And if they don't, then they're going to lose money. But if the risk of them not being able to do that is pretty high, then they're not going to go forward with the project or capital providers that are going to lend them the money will factor that in and say, look, I would need to, you know, I could get an extremely safe city tax-free return of, you know, 4% has a tax equivalent rate of six and a half percent or whatever. Whereas you're going to charge me, you know, you're going to pay me a, a 7% interest rate, but I have all, you know, it's a, it's a smaller business. There's all these risk concerns. If you're not able to, to, you know, if you're not able to build this real estate and, and end up charging a price or whatever the project is going to be, because it's not just realist capital competes for it's There's a number of different things that capital competes for. It dries up the cost of capital. It means that the price of the house that, a, a developer will have to charge or a housing unit they'll developer or an owner will have to charge at the end of the day is going to be higher if they're to make a profit. And if they're not going to be able to charge that because of some other rules or regulations, they're just not going to go forward with the project. They're not going to willingly lose money. And that's, that's going to be one of the effects that this $1.2 billion bond that's going to suck up real resources here in the city of LA that could have otherwise gone to producing private housing units, privately built housing units, it's going to do nothing more than increase the cost and continue to increase the cost of housing, all housing, and that's going to adversely affect the, the most vulnerable members of the community. So that's, that, that's the problem I have with, with that measure. I think it was a bad measure to pass. The next measure, I believe is measure JJJ, was a, is titled Build Better LA Initiative. And basically, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to walk through the proposal. So this is the proposal. All development projects that include 10 or more residential units and require changes to the general plan or other zoning and construction rules would be required to make a percentage of the units, quote unquote, affordable to low income and working residents. I'm not even going to get into the rhetoric of calling it working residents. Or pay a fee to fund affordable housing and enforce laws that protect renters. Developers of any such residential projects would have to hire contractors who are licensed according to city and state law, which they have to anyways. I don't know why they have to double that down on that one. Guarantee to offer, and this is, this is where it, it gets a little bit tricky here, right? 
guaranteed to offer at least 30% of work hours to city residents with 10% of work hours coming from those living within a five-mile radius of the project. Pay, quote-unquote, standard wages for the area and employ members of apprenticeship training programs and workers with real-world experience, quote-unquote. And then um, it also the, – so there's like the, the bullet point one and the, the, first, the four sub-bullet points. So bullet point two – no changes to local plans for certain districts could be made without a guarantee that the changes would not, quote unquote, and this is in quotes in the proposal, reduce the capacity for creation and preservation of affordable housing and access to local jobs. So I, I mean, I try to touch on that a little bit af afterwards, but I want to get through this. Developers would be required to make as much as 20% of the units in a project, quote unquote, affordable for low income and working renters. That number can be as high as 40% for homes that are for sale. So, all right. moreover, project, projects planned are, are around public transit within a half a mile from significant public transit stops would be encouraged through an incentive program that would apply only to projects that include affordable housing and require contractors to comply with the restrictions laid out in the second bullet point of the list above, which is basically that they guarantee a certain amount of work hours to certain people. And then they highlight a, a final bullet point, no tax dollars will be used. Right. Because they're not, I mean, they're not actually spending any money here. They're just restricting what can be done. So in, these, in the case of these new rules and regulations, it'll absolutely increase cost. It's going to increase both the time and money cost of real estate entrepreneurs that are seeking to rezone to turn a lot that could provide many more units, more than 10, from an unused real resource to additional housing units. And the result is going to be that it's going to take longer and longer. We already talked about earlier that it's going to it's going to incentivize single family and commercial real estate or smaller than 10 unit projects. Not a good idea. And it's a really, really dangerous and bad idea to let government get involved in this. And I want to, I want to talk about a couple of things that they phrase in here. So first of all, what is affordable for low income? And then what is a working renter? I mean, I would assume that most renters are either working or retired, right? So is it non-retirees? Or are they talking about maybe it's students? But why are students going to get the raw end of the deal? And maybe it's because you already have a ton of rules that benefit students and student housing in and around college campuses, but also don't really work very well because student housing is very expensive. I'm not exactly sure what working renters means. Now, and I'm not sure what their definition of affordable for low income is. And to, to require to make as much as 20% of the units for rentals to, to be subject to, I guess, bureaucratic dictate on what the price can be. And then to say as many as 40% for homes that are for sale. So we, want to, we, we also want to incentivize low-income people. Give it, give, we want to incentivize them to give up their flexibility to move somewhere where maybe it's a little bit cheaper to live. 
We want to lock them in. We're going to give them even more of an incentive to become an owner, even though they're struggling right now just to pay rent. They also have in here, which from reading it, seems like the, the entire bill does exactly what they're trying to, to, to prevent with the, this second overall bullet point, or I guess the third bullet point. There's point one, point two, and then a bunch of subpoints. But no changes to the local plans for certain districts could be made without a guarantee that the changes would not, quote unquote, reduce the capacity for creation and preservation of affordable housing and access to local jobs. All the zone, if you want to increase the capacity for the creation and preservation of affordable housing and access to local jobs, get rid of zoning altogether. And let individuals who say, hey, look, there's a lot of jobs around here. There's a lot of low-income people that come from far away. I could build a bunch of units. They'll be kind of maybe a little bit smaller units. But you know, the, it, it, I'll be able to charge the same amount or less than what they, they pay right now. And they'll be able to live a lot closer to their home. They'll cut down on on their their commute it'll significantly reduce the amount of traffic congestion at certain times blah 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 blah, and all these great benefits that would come just from an entrepreneur deciding this would be a good spot and not being restricted from using it to begin with and if he's wrong then he's wrong himself and he loses money himself or herself or whoever the real estate or whoever the investors are their investors money but you don't end up forcing a bunch of taxpayers to deal with the consequences of all of this. What, what it should be is it should just be a mass dezoning bill. If you're worried about the, the – you know, and you want to come back 15 years from now and say, okay, you know, the city's all built up and we got to do something. Then try to make that pitch 15 years from now. But, but when there's an affordable housing crisis, the, the answer is not more government. The answer is get government out of the way and let private capital go to work in a very cheap and efficient manner, yeah, make sure that they're not going to, you know, require them to have insurance in case they bust a pipe or, you know, require them to, you know, submit their plans to make sure that they're engine, you know, you have an engineer, maybe a chief engineer that reviews them and says, yeah, they're not going to, the building's not going to collapse. And then boom, approved. That's how you reduce the cost of housing. I, I want to leave everybody with this final thought, okay? Voting is not virtue signaling. It's not saying, yeah, I think there should be less homeless people. I want to do something about it. You want to do something about it, you go out there with your private money and do it. Voting has real implications in the real world. And voting yes on measures like this is asserting that you have the supposed right to force others to comply with your worldview. A worldview that says private property rights should be restricted and private individuals will have a gun pointed at them and forced to stop building if they try to violate those restrictions, the arbitrary restrictions on their own private property rights. Voting for measures like this also represents a worldview, whereas I pointed out earlier, instead of the yes voters putting up the equivalent of one month's rent in a a one-bedroom apartment, each of them privately, the ones that voted yes, they rather want to see government use its monopoly on the initiation of force to require all the people that voted no and all the people that didn't vote for it to cough up more in their property taxes, which ironically will directly increase the cost of housing units. Just think about that. 
It has real implications. And before you go and vote, you've got to think through all the implications of that vote, not just the direct cause or what's on the ballot, but how it's going to affect the way that people act and the actions the entrepreneurs take. Well, everybody, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Because of t- technical difficulties last night, we will be having a second episode, a second show later this evening, um, t- today on, on November 18th. So this is episode 10. Episode 11 is coming out later tonight. So if you don't want to miss it, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, uh, facebook.com slash the macro view. On Twitter, it's at the macro view. Uh, and check out our blog. It's at macroviewnews.com slash the macro view. If you want more information on uh, today's show, tonight's show, past episodes, you want to listen into past episodes, you go to that website, macroviewnews.com slash the macro view. There's a bunch of blog posts, but within the blog posts, you also will find all of our past episodes. I'm your host, Andrew, Andrew Smith, and I am signing off now until next time. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Hope you'll tune in later this evening.